Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. We started making yogurt as a way to fund an organic farming school. And 28 years later, our mission is still all about healthy food, healthy people, and a healthy planet. Today, we support 200,000 acres of organic family farms, and we give 10% of our profits to efforts that protect and restore the earth. So we're proud to support thoughtful programming like Living on Earth, and hope you will too. Donate at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Congress tries to shed light on questionable federal loan guarantees to the solar energy industry as the lights go out for three major U.S. producers of solar panels. There are going to be many companies that do fail. So there's going to be a lot of growing pains, and there are going to be a lot of companies as a result that won't make it. But don't count solar out just yet. The future actually looks bright. Also, wildfires sear many parts of the country, but central Texas suffers its worst fire season in its history, destroying an area the size of Connecticut. The truth is, it has been a miserable summer. I mean, here we have had an epic drought with high temperatures, you know, just shattering records. And so what experts say is that this year you really have had a combination of factors that have made this area a real tinderbox. We'll have those stories and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Last year, President Obama traveled to Silicon Valley, hoping to hitch the nation's energy future to our nearest star, the sun. The president was in California to champion a startup company called Solyndra that, with the help of more than half a billion dollars in federal loan guarantees, was producing a new kind of solar panel. You're demonstrating that the promise of clean energy isn't just an article of faith, not anymore. It's not some abstract possibility for science fiction movies or a distant future, or 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. It's happening right now. That was then, but the sun has since set on Solyndra. The company went belly up. 1,100 workers lost their jobs, and FBI agents went in like gangbusters, searching Solyndra for evidence of wrongdoing. Now Congress is investigating whether the federal loan guarantees to the company should have been made at all. Here's Florida Republican Cliff Stearns. It should not take a financial restructuring, bankruptcy, an FBI raid for my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to put politics aside and join us in our efforts. The solar industry is under a dark cloud these days because besides Solyndra, Massachusetts-based Evergreen Solar, which also received large government support, filed bankruptcy, and so did privately held SpectraWatt, financed by Intel. But market analyst MJ Shao of Green Tech Media says there's a lot more to the solar story. Well, certainly uh, when you just take the three of them by themselves, uh, it doesn't paint a pretty picture for the U.S. manufacturing landscape. And there's a lot more manufacturers in the U.S. who are who are competitive right now, who are uh, producing solar modules and even the raw materials for solar modules and all the supporting components and hardware for solar systems that we need. Uh, so, so the industry is much greater than just these three companies. But Solyndra was the big boy on the block. And together, I guess, Solyndra and Evergreen produced about, what, uh, 20% of the U.S. Uh, production? Most of that was actually evergreen. That void will, will certainly be filled. It, it might be filled by foreign manufacturers. But it's important to keep in mind that just because Solyndra and Evergreen and SpectraWatt have failed doesn't mean that U.S. manufacturing is necessarily doomed. President Obama was a great champion of solar electricity, and, and specifically this company, uh, Solyndra. Sure. Does he bear some of the responsibility for, you know, boosting it, and now we find out that, you know, the FBI is raiding their, their offices to see if there's a, you know, malfeasance. I absolutely say that his administration, particularly the DOE loan guarantee program itself, does have some questions that need to be answered. You know, what kind of due diligence was put in place? Why did they make this investment in the first place? Uh, that being said, you can't just say that, okay, this loan guarantee program has completely failed just because Solyndra has failed. Uh, it is just a small part of the portfolio. It's only about 3% of the entire solar portfolio of this loan guarantee program. And that's not including investments into other advanced technologies like electric vehicles, batteries, and, and other technologies. 
Now there's news about another company called Solar City, and they're going to install more solar. I guess they're going to double the amount of installed solar panels in the United States in just a few years. <laughs> so they say, anyway. They have a Department of Defense contract, mm-hmm. and they've got a subsidy from the Department of Energy. Mm-hmm. Department of Energy is going to put these solar cells on the roofs of houses on their base. Yep, exactly. And SolarCity has been one of the pioneers of a very interesting movement in the U.S. solar industry, which is where these companies are actually offering solar leases. So there's no upfront cost to the residential homeowner. They Instead, they just simply pay a lease payment or they pay an electricity bill to the company that installed the solar. So SolarCity installs it on a house on a military base, and then they get the electricity and they sell it back to the customer. The customer doesn't have to pay for the panel. Exactly. So Solar City is able to take advantage of a lot of the uh, tax benefits, the uh, government subsidies or local subsidies for solar in that area. But uh, the residential homeowner doesn't have to put up any upfront costs for the system. Do you ever see the day when solar can exist without the subsidies? So that's a really interesting question. Um, so this, it's actually in the industry we call this grid parity. When when will solar re, uh, reach grid parity? But suffice to say, right now we don't have to worry about that till about 2016 because that's when the current major solar incentives expire federally. Another point is that other forms of energy generation receive very generous subsidies as well. So to say that renewables, uh, solar, wind, and, and other renewables need to reach this uh, quote-unquote grid parity point where they're not, no longer subsidized is a bit of an unfair playing field. Can the United States compete as a producer of solar panels? I mean, China can produce them so much more cheaply than we can. Mm-hmm. I think the U.S. can. I have to caveat with saying that you can't beat China at its own game. Uh, These Chinese companies, they have access to cheap capital, access to cheap labor. They have better access to the supply chain for solar. So it's incumbent on U.S. manufacturing companies to really innovate and especially innovate towards uh, low-cost manufacturing. I bring up First Solar, which is one of the largest solar module producers in the world, and it has facilities in the U.S. that are on par with uh, Chinese companies because it has taken uh, such great lengths to innovate towards low-cost manufacturing. So MJ Xiao is an analyst of solar markets for Green Tech Media. What do you tell investors who say, well, you know, I'm really interested in solar? What do you tell them? I think the long-term picture for solar is strong. Investing in in solar as a very broad industry is going to be a winner. Uh, However, there are going to be many uh, companies that do fail. So there's going to be a lot of growing pains, and there are going to be a lot of companies as a result that won't make it. Well, MJ Xiao, thank you so very much for coming in. All right, thank you. MJ Xiao is an analyst for solar markets for Green Tech Media. Well, just when things look dim for the Greek economy, there is perhaps one bright spot on the horizon, solar. Deutsche Welle Radio's Jonathan Gifford attended the recent European Photovoltaic Solar Conference in Hamburg, Germany, and has our story. 10 gigawatts is a lot of electricity. Just how big it is is hard to imagine. It's the size of five of the biggest coal-fired power plants in the U.S. It's also a little less than five times the output of the Hoover Dam, and it's more than the annual production of the National Greek Electricity Utility. But 10 gigawatts is also the generating capacity of new solar plants the Greek government would like to install in an ambitious plan announced at one of the solar industry's biggest trade shows, EUPVSEC. Referring to the scheme as Project Helios, Greek Energy Minister George Papakonstantinou provided the first details of the plan, which just a few weeks ago had been little more than a rumour. But asking just how Athens plans to pull off such a scheme raises almost as many questions as it answers. Well, Project Helios is just a concept at the moment. That was an idea born uh, just a few weeks ago. There is nothing concrete yet. Actually, the presentation in Hamburg was the first ever document that we've seen about this project. That's Stelios Psormas from Halapko, the Greek Solar Industry Association. 
His group met with the Greek Energy Ministry to discuss the plan. At this stage, the proposal is that Athens would work with the German government and solar industry to determine the investment required to install 10 gigawatts of solar generating capacity by 2050. Of course, Greece doesn't need all that electricity, but Germany, which aims to close down all its nuclear reactors by 2022, could certainly put it to good use in one way or another. This is still a question whether it will be physically exported or how much of it will be physically exported to Germany or other European countries and which part of it will be statistically exported, if you like, in the sense that according to the European legislation, member states can exchange green energy among them in order to reach their renewable energy targets. Sormus imagines that it will be a combination of the two. A limiting factor is the power lines, the grid, that connects Greece to the Balkans and then to Central Europe. It wasn't designed to export so much energy and would require a serious upgrade to carry 10 gigawatts. This, of course, would require major investments and with a liquidity crisis still gripping the Greek banking sector, funding isn't always easy to obtain. Iris Polychromopoulos, the general manager of Greece's largest solar installer, Biosar, appears confident, however. He says that if only one industry could get a loan in Greece these days, it'd probably be the solar energy sector. So financing is still a problem, but uh, due to the fact that all the other aspects of Greek economy are getting worse, any money available from the banks, they're going for solar investments. So I don't see that there's a huge problem right now. Polychromopolis adds that the growth in the Greek solar market is steady, which is advantageous when compared to the boom-bust cycle observed in Spain and the Czech Republic, both former darlings of the solar scene. He says that the fact that thousands of local businesses and households are installing solar panels is better than any one big energy export plan. Things are going on well, and there are megawatts per month which are being uh, installed and connected uh, in houses. At the same time, I think uh, that uh, now there are a lot of applications for uh, rooftops, commercial and industrial. So from uh, Q4 and 2012, I think we'll see a lot of installations in uh, rooftops in Greece. What do you think about the idea of Greece as a renewable energy exporter, whether it's in real terms, down the wires, or this trading kind of idea within Europe? You should ask our minister. While the Greek government's concept gives some hope to the solar industry at a time when prices for photovoltaic modules are falling fast and two major US manufacturers have declared bankruptcy, investors shouldn't be getting too excited just yet. Everyone knows there's plenty of sunshine in Greece, but equally there's also the knowledge of Greece's uncertain public finances. That's according to Karl-Heinz Lemmers, the founder of Solarpraxis AG, from Berlin. It's a good idea and uh, Greece is a brilliant place for, for photovoltaic but claiming f- to realize such a project with money from the other European countries is absolutely uh, impossible. Nobody will give him the money. I think Greece cannot afford to do something like this. So while the potential, the sunlight and the political will all seem to be in place, sorting out the nuts and bolts required to make Project Helios light up Europe's electricity grid and create jobs and business opportunities in Greece will take a long time. But here in Hamburg on the last day of a solar trade fair, where most of the official discussions focused on how fast prices are falling, Greece's 10 gigawatt dream is a ray of sunshine that certainly got delegates talking on the sidelines. Jonathan Gifford, Hamburg. Deutsche Welle has a lot of illuminating stories about Europe and the environment. You can find the link at our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, as dams in Washington state start coming down, fish face an uncertain future. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Ferocious wildfires have been scorching the earth around the United States. Fueled by tinder dry trees and fanned by gusting winds, a wildfire in the Boundary Waters Wilderness of northern Minnesota charred 100,000 acres of forest, sending clouds of choking smoke 600 miles away. In California, there were mandatory evacuations as wildfires roared near Sequoia National Park. But hardest hit has been Texas, where heat, drought, and human factors have conspired to burn more than three and a half million acres to a crisp. 
Ground Zero has been Central Texas. We caught up with reporter Tony Plohetsky in the newsroom of the Austin American Statesman. Welcome to Living on Earth, Tony. Thanks for having me. So I was reading there about 21,000 wildfires in Texas since last November alone and half since Labor Day. How does this compare? You know, certainly in this part of the country, we have had wildfires from time to time. But the truth is, this has been an unprecedented year with so many homes burned, 1,500 or more in one area alone in Bastrop County. So it really has been an epic event for us here. How close have you gotten to these fires? You know, the nearest one to downtown Austin, which is where I am right now, was about 30 miles away. But I will tell you this, immediately afterwards, you could see smoke from downtown Austin. And in fact, the day after the fires, smoke really hung low throughout downtown Austin. And a lot of people were actually having some health problems associated with it. Yeah, I imagine the smell must be terrible. Yeah, it was for a time. So the conditions in central Texas this summer sound um, really intense, very, very hot. I guess you had the hottest August on record. The truth is it has been a miserable summer. I mean, here we have had an epic drought that has, you know, taken moisture from the state. We've also been incredibly hot. We've had, you know, 70 plus days of 100 degrees or more with high temperatures, you know, getting into the, the 110, 112 range and shattering records. So at the same time, we've also seen massive growth. We've seen homes being built along what fire officials call the urban wildland interface, which is sort of the tectonic fault line for wildfire development. And so what experts say is that this year you really have had a combination of factors that have contributed to the wildfire risk and have in fact made this area a real tinderbox. So you've got an environmental problem, there's drought and the heat, and then you have this people problem, people moving into areas that are susceptible to wildfires. Right. And the thing about that is, you know, they're moving into areas that, frankly, are beautiful. And the Bastrop County fire, you know, you have these beautiful tall pines and you see people building at the top of hills that have majestic views overlooking the hill country. But at the same time, you know, according to fire experts, when you build and develop in those areas, particularly at the tops of hills, you're really at the top of what they call a matchbox. Well, are there planners who say what you can and can't put in different places? Well, that is the real interesting thing. You know, much of Texas and this region is not in incorporated cities. They are in more rural areas. And the state really does not allow counties to regulate development. So ultimately, what it comes down to is people have to assume responsibility for their personal property. And so that has really been an issue. There have been moves in different areas to get more stringent regulation in place. But the truth is, many people, homeowners and developers alike, don't want to do that. They want to build as much as they can on that precious property. So that has been an ongoing issue. What about the um, firefighters and and all the equipment that's needed to fight these? Aren't the firefighters saying, hey, you know, we need some help here? Absolutely. I do think you're going to see departments really across this region taking a harder look at how they can be more prepared to go after these fires should they break out and possibly seeking grants to help buy more equipment or pay for more firefighters and as well as, you know, getting that from their local budgets. You know that FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management uh, Agency, covers, what, 75% of fighting uh, these types of fires? That is my understanding, yeah. And and that families that are affected can get up to $30,000 to cover non-insured risks. You know, here you've got Governor Rick Perry of Texas saying, you know, we've got these fires. He rushed back from the campaign trail to go there. And yet um, the federal government, which he'd like to cut, is picking up a big part of the tab to fight and fend off these fires. But, you know, local resources have have certainly been used to fight the fires as well. But if there were cuts here, they'd bite pretty deep. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the way cuts work. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) So is there any pushback by people? Are people now saying, hey, maybe we need to have some better planning or prepare better for, for next year? Absolutely. I mean, that seems to be where the renewed focus is. But I got to tell you, too, at the same time, people just want to 
get back to their property. They want to see what's left. And the conversation has really shifted to rebuilding and whether or not to rebuild and if to rebuild, how to do it and where to do it. That really seems to be the focus here right now. Tony, do you think this is the new normal? I mean, you keep on having droughts. You have these intense weather conditions, wildfires out of control. Is this the new norm? You know, some people would certainly say that it is and that, you know, next summer is going to bring even more issues. It's definitely kind of a a tender place to be. We're going to have to keep watching it very closely in the months and possibly years to come. Well, Tony Plohetsky, thank you so very much. Thank you. Take care. Tony Plohetsky is a reporter with the Austin American Statesman in Austin, Texas. Wild salmon have been struggling to survive in the Elwa River ever since the government began damming it back in 1913. Now, nearly 100 years later, two dams along the Elwa in Washington state are coming down. It's the largest dam removal project in the world. And some say the coho, steelhead, and chump salmon will need help to restore them to their past glory. But others want nature to take its course. We have the second and final report of Ashley Ahern's series, Undamming the Elwa. Larry Ward stands on the banks of a gravel-lined channel two miles from the mouth of the Elwha River. He's the head of the Lower Elwha Klallam tribe's new hatchery, which was finished last May. This will be the point at which adults returning from the river enter into the hatchery itself and where fish produced and reared at the hatchery leave and first enter into the Elwha River. We walk a couple hundred yards from the river to the hatchery where long concrete troughs hold thousands of juvenile coho salmon their dappled bodies flickering in the sun. There are about 600,000 fish in the hatchery, steelhead and coho salmon for now, but Ward wants to see that number increase. Ultimately, I think we're looking for thousands of adults coming back to the the hatchery facility, chum salmon, coho, steelhead, and producing upwards of a million and a half or two million fish to be released. Across the way from the coho troughs, large asphalt ponds sparkle with steelhead, about 80,000 in each pond. Ward explains that only about 150 wild steelhead return to the Elwha each year. It's a critically depressed stock, and so that's why we've gone to this extra measure to rear the population captively in the hatchery to try and and increase the number of, of fish that are available. You might look at these captive steelhead as sort of the freshman class of the new Elwha. They'll be one of the first generations to have access to the waters above the dams when they return from the ocean in a couple years. The hatcheries will be able to support the restoration of fish stocks by providing fish to supplement the natural productivity in the river. So the hatcheries are going to help to accelerate the recovery and restoration process of fish in the river. This is the largest dam removal in history, so no one really knows how long it will take wild runs of salmon to return to this watershed. Some scientific estimates suggest 40 to 60 years. But for the lower Elwha Klallam tribe, whose reservation is at the mouth of the Elwha, that's too long to wait. They're hoping the hatchery will restore the salmon fishery here within a decade or so. Mike McHenry is a fisheries biologist with the lower Elwha Klallam tribe. He says there's been much debate over hatcheries on the Elwha. And it's probably one of the most controversial things about the whole Elwha project. This philosophical divide between folks that want to use hatcheries to accelerate recovery and those that feel like it should be a totally natural recolonization experiment. McHenry sits right on the fence on this one. He says hatcheries could be a lifeline for the wild fish population that might suffer during a potentially massive flush of sediment into the river during dam removal. But he and other scientists take issue with the type of fish that will be raised in the hatchery. One fish in particular, the Chambers Creek steelhead. This fish is not native to the Elwha, but it's become popular as a hatchery fish in the region because it grows about twice as fast as wild steelhead and returns early. There's concern that they might interbreed with native fish. Uh, There's ecological concerns. The smolts that are released are very large. They tend to be highly predaceous on other species of salmon. They tend to to outcompete native steelhead because of their size in some cases. Fred Utter is an expert on fish genetics. He worked for the National Marine Fisheries Service for 30 years before becoming a professor at the University of Washington. He says Chambers Creek steelhead are great for maintaining a sport fishery. And it's a valuable fish in that case. But it by no means should ever be used as a 
fish to restore natural populations in the Elwha, I think that would be a serious mistake. Rob Ellison stands on a bluff overlooking the Elwha. He's a member of the Lower Elwha Klallam Tribe and director of the river restoration effort. The tribe has been without healthy salmon runs for almost 100 years, and they're tired of waiting. Ellison says hatchery-raised Chambers Creek steelhead have been a good supplement to the depleted wild runs. But that's not a permanent solution. The idea would be when our harvest of other salmon in the river reaches a certain point, we could phase out the Chambers Creek. But it is my job to make sure that the tribal fishermen have a fishery. As the different runs of salmon balance themselves out, the tribe plans to phase out the entire fish hatchery. But no one knows exactly how long that will take, or how hatchery fish might affect the balance of salmon runs here in the long term. As the fish, both hatchery and wild, make it into the upper reaches of the river in the coming years, Rob Ellefson's dream is to follow them. I'm hoping that we can go up to Elkhorn and catch a salmon and cook it up for dinner. (laughs) Uh, That would be the ideal, because then I'd still be young enough to hike up to Elkhorn. (laughs) It's uh, about 27 miles upstream from the mouth of the Elwha. From here on out, all eyes will be on the Elwha as this much-studied, much-debated, and much-loved river resumes her natural course from the Olympic Mountains to the Pacific. I'm Ashley Ahern on the Elwha River. Ashley Ahern reports for Earth Fix, a public media project that explores the environment of the Pacific Northwest. Coming up, NASA unveils its new heavy-lift rocket, big and powerful enough to launch a dozen elephants into space. But first, this note on emerging science from Stephanie McPherson. Bats flit across the night sky in a rapid ballet of twists and turns. Now, researchers believe the bat's agility is due to the tiny hairs on their wings. The hairs on bats' wings bend in the breeze and trigger super-sensitive cells that help them register the speed and direction of the wind. Scientists from the University of Maryland measured electrical firings from the bats' brains as they responded to the signals coming from the sensor cells. The brains were most active when they sensed the wind coming from behind, a situation that could lead to stalling. The researchers wanted to know how the bats put those signals to use. The mammals flew through obstacle courses, first with their hairs intact, then again after the hairs were removed using a topical cream. The bats moved easily through the course during the first round, but when their wings were hairless, the bats flew faster and took wider turns. Since the hairs weren't there to trigger the sensor cells, scientists believe the bats sped up to avoid dropping from the sky. In the real world, they would have had trouble catching prey or avoiding predators. Researchers are looking into how they can use this information to improve wind sensors on airplanes. Perhaps they can prevent stalling with a wing and a hair. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Stephanie McPherson. NASA is thinking big, really big. The American Space Agency has just unveiled the design for a supersized rocket. The plan is to use the new, powerful space launch system to propel people and payloads far into space on voyages back to the moon and beyond. Todd May is project manager of NASA's space launch system. Mr. May, welcome to Living on Earth. Hey, Bruce. Uh, Glad to be here with you today. So how big is this new rocket? Uh, The initial capability is uh, 70 metric tons to low Earth orbit. Uh, about twice uh, the payload capability of the uh, previous shuttle. So let's see, that's about 140,000 pounds. I'm just uh, doing a back-of-the-envelope calculation. That's right. That's uh, the equivalent of maybe uh, nine school buses or 12 elephants. A fairly large payload capability. So compare that to, say, the the, um, Saturn V, which was the biggest uh, rocket on the planet before. That's the one that took us to the moon. Uh, How big is it compared to that? The initial capability actually has about 10% more uh, thrust off of the pad than the uh, Saturn V did. The evolved capability, somewhat more than that. Well, your Space Launch System, that's the name of this new rocket, right? That's correct, sir. Not, it's not uh, poetic there, though, i got to tell you. 
Maybe you guys can name something, give it something a little better. We, we uh, NASA engineers can sometimes be a little geeky, you know? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> so uh, why do we need something this big? Where are we going? Well, uh, to the future, Bruce. We think uh, great nations explore, and the United States is worthy of a, of a great rocket to explore. One of the ways to think about it is in, in this administration, we think of it as a capability-driven uh, architecture where you actually develop initial capability and then add additional capability as you decide you want to go other places. But this heavy lift rocket will take a uh, crew beyond low Earth orbit to just about any destination you want it to go, even to Mars, asteroids. It also opens up uh, deep exploration for science missions, say, to the outer solar system uh, with direct flights. And we're going to put people on board this thing, huh? You can. That's right. You can also take uh, people. You can take cargo. Boosting something this big into space um, probably costs big bucks. What are we talking about here? Uh, Bruce, um, if you think about the total program, we are living within a budget that's about $3 billion a year, including uh, what we call the multi-purpose crew vehicle, which is the actual capsule that carries the crew to space and back home safely, and the ground systems at Kennedy Space Center. You got to get this thing off the ground with Congress. Um, what are they saying to you? You're, you're saying rocket. They're saying jobs. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we have uh, many stakeholders out there, and and we balance the various stakeholders. I, I think uh, both Congress and the administration are, are solidly behind this rocket, as you saw in the uh, appropriations last year and in the uh, announcement today uh, from the administrator. So uh, when's the launch date going to be? Today we are uh, targeting the uh, by the end of 2017, uh, actually the month of December. Wow, that's not very far off. You've got to really do a lot of work here. Uh, we sure do, sir. Uh, we'll be working hard to get that core designed, developed, tested, and ready to fly. Boy, would you like to be aboard on one of these missions? Oh, sure. I've thought about that since I was a child. I'm, I'm getting a little old for that, though, myself. Mr. May, thank you so much, and good luck. Thank you, Bruce. Todd May is program manager of NASA's new rocket. They call it the Space Launch System. But there's got to be somebody out there that has a better name. So ignite your imagination and land your suggestions on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. In just a minute... The New Jersey Shorebirds. What's the situation? Find out right here at Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. And the Sierra Club, helping city-bound kids explore and enjoy wild places they'll later strive to protect. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Scientists often try to think outside the box, but Professor Ian Stewart is definitely thinking inside the box. We called him up just as he was about to be sealed in a bedroom-sized container with a small forest worth of plants. Ian Stewart is a geologist and professor of geoscience communication at the University of Plymouth, England. Professor, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so why seal yourself inside a box for... For two days. I mean, the science is well known. What are you trying to prove? Well, I think everyone knows generally that, that the oxygen that we breathe that's in our atmosphere comes from photosynthesis and, and generally from plants. But, you know, actually how much people appreciate that just how much of that oxygen and how much they rely on plants, this kind of thing that they take for granted every day, you know, that's a little bit more interesting. And from a scientific point of view, just how much photosynthesis you actually need to get plants to produce to get the oxygen to keep an individual alive well you know we've just not done that this little experiment is a metaphor for how much we're relying on plants i guess that's the key headline message we want to get across so without plants no oxygen no oxygen no people absolutely you know if we didn't have plants we would have a very very different planet and the point is What's lovely about this experiment is there's a symbiotic relationship in here. I'm in a box, um, a really small glass box, 
And basically, I have to uh, work and exercise in order to give out carbon dioxide to the plants that are around me in order for them to photosynthesize and give me back oxygen. So if I don't do my job and I don't produce enough CO2, the plants can't do their job and supply me with oxygen. So it just shows that really uh, sensitive, intimate relationship we have with vegetation that I think most ordinary people just aren't aware of. So describe the box. How big is it? Uh, what's it made of? Is it going to be airtight? Well, the first thing is I haven't seen the box. I'll be seeing it later this afternoon. But I know the kind of dimensions of it and, and roughly it's going to be made of, of a kind of a glass, a kind of glass perspex. It's going to be see-through. It's going to be airtight. In terms of size, it's, you know, a couple of metres across and, and tall and about eight metres long, stacked full of 150 or so small plants and maybe about 30 large plants. All of them have been bred for the last few months to be efficient photosynthesizers. There's a huge theory here about how much these plants, how much oxygen they should produce, but the telling thing will be once we're in there and we've got the temperature conditions and my CO2 conditions will be how much they actually produce. And, you know, until we do it over the next 40 hours, we really won't know if that's going to work out or not. Well, actually, it's going to be very cozy in there. Eight meters is about 26 feet, I guess. So you're going to be very friendly with those plants. <laughs> I'm going to be very friendly with those plants. And also the center, the Eden Center, where it's been held, is a, is got a, is a tropical plant uh, dome. It's almost like the biome experiments that were run in Arizona a few years ago. So in this place, it's 25 degrees um, Celsius. Ooh, very tropical. It's going to be incredibly tropical. So I'm going to, it's going to be hot and sweaty, surrounded by these plants. The other thing is we have to keep the lights on constantly. So it's going to be daylight essentially uh, for 40 hours. How the plants deal with that, how I deal with it is, again, an uncertainty. What about uh, exercise, eating? Yeah, I mean, I've got an exercise bike in there, but that's largely to do experiment runs and know how my body's reacting, but also, crucially, to make sure that I'm pumping out carbon dioxide for those plants. So I can't just sit passively and, and you know, just kind of chill. Um, in terms of food, I, I think it's going to be salad because we, can, we can't <laughs> eat anything. We can't cook anything. So I'm going to be surrounded by plants and I'm going to be eating them, which is a bit of a, an oddity. Well, what happens if you uh, wind up having trouble breathing? The two potential health concerns are, the main one is how my body's going to deal with the initial low oxygen. So we're going to take oxygen down to, from 21%, which is normal, to about between 10 and 12%, which is equivalent, equivalent of an altitude of, you know, mountains like Andes, 4,500 metres, 5,000 metres. You know, at that level, it's very often that your body, you get dizzy, you get nauseous, you know, you get extreme headaches. So it could well be that if it's a very extreme reaction, then we abort very early on if I can't handle the low oxygen. you have a panic button? Uh, I think I can open from the inside, yeah. But I'll be monitored, you know, the idea is to monitor me. There'll be doctors that are specialists in low oxygen there. And, you know, the idea is to, to monitor me throughout. And, you know, the, the first and foremost is to help my health and safety. So if, if we see it going awry, they'll get me out of there. Thank you very much, uh, Professor, and uh, good luck. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm going to enjoy it, I think. Ian Stewart is a geologist and professor of geoscience communication at the University of Plymouth, England. Jersey Shore is the scene for the reality TV show that made the situation a household name. But for scientists and birders, the real situation is the survival of New Jersey shorebirds, whose migratory flight takes them all the way to Antarctica and back. Mitra Taj caught up with some of the birds' biggest backers to document the dramatic effort to save them. If you want a visual of bird species in decline, don't come to the Delaware Bay in the summer. Here at Reed's Beach, small flocks of birds crowd the shore and swoop through a pastel sky. I just arrived, and to get here and see thousands of birds in the air is really a wonderful thing, a hopeful sign. 
Charles Duncan leads the effort to protect the birds for the Manamit Center for Conservation Sciences. He used to be a chemist. That was before he became obsessed with shorebirds, in particular red knots, the small, plain-looking birds poking their beaks into the sand in front of us. A closer look reveals the reddish chests of the males strutting the beach, but their plumage isn't what's attracted Duncan. You know, if you, if you just walk up to somebody on the street and said, do you imagine that a bird that weighs the same as an iPhone could fly from southern South America to New Jersey, they, they would tell you to stop smoking that stuff. You know, they would, they would look at you like you're crazy, but, but here it is. And these birds that we're looking at in front of us have done exactly that. And they're about to do a lot more. The Delaware Bay in southern New Jersey is just a rest stop for the Red Knot. After coming all the way from Tierra del Fuego near Antarctica, they set off for the Canadian Arctic, where they mate and lay eggs. Oh, and by the way, the birds you hear in the background aren't Red Knots. They're local laughing gulls. Here's the Red Knot, courtesy of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. That's the bird's flight song, a tune it gets plenty of time to practice. Red knots spend about a third of their lives flying back and forth across the planet, about 18,000 miles a year. One red knot Duncan's been tracking could have flown to the moon by now. So they're some of the greatest migrants of any species on the planet. And they're in decline. Larry Niles works as a biologist with the Conserve Wildlife Foundation of New Jersey. So when we first started our work, we had over... 90,000 red knots come to the Delaware Bay. And last year we had just over 16,000. And this year we're not sure if there's even going to be 10,000. In 10 years, the total red knot population has shrunk to less than a fifth of what it used to be. While other countries have listed the red knot as an endangered species in need of protection, the United States hasn't yet. It's waiting in the endangered species listing backlog at the Department of Interior. Roger, is there, you're at Kimball's, aren't you? But Duncan and Niles aren't alone in their efforts. Every year, a small army of volunteers helps them gather intelligence on shorebirds that could help slow their decline. They meet in a Jersey beach house to plot strategies, then scatter over the beach armed with walkie-talkies and scope binoculars. Some crouch behind sand dunes, others watch their feathered targets from the cockpit of a Cessna. Here comes the plane, Clive. As the plane presses into the shore, the sky fills with birds, and volunteers inside the plane visually estimate how many have taken flight. See all the birds coming up there. That's exactly what we want because uh, you can't count the birds on the ground. It's a skill that takes years to perfect. You have to have a mental image of what a thousand birds looks like so that you can go one, two, three, four, five thousand while you're flying by at a hundred miles an hour. People get really good at it. It's surprising. You get a a sense of how 60 looks different from 53. This year, after conducting counts like this every three days, the news wasn't good. The number of red knots visiting the Delaware Bay appears to have dropped by another couple thousand. While they still can, Duncan and Niles want to learn from the birds. How do they survive such a long voyage? What tells them which way to go? Eight years ago, a new technology opened a window into the secret life of the red knot. Geolocators, little bands placed on the bird's legs, record the time of sunrises and sunsets as they make their journey. Because every part of the world has unique sunrise and sunset times, they can put together a day-to-day diary of where a bird has been. Larry Niles and Charles Duncan. The results are stunning. We're finding birds making these heroic journeys that go from uh, wintering areas in, in Uruguay flying straight across the Amazon, straight across the Atlantic to like North Carolina, Delaware Bay, all in one shot, not landing, just flying for 8,000 kilometers and six days straight. It's, uh, you know, it's, this is an oppressive animal, and you don't really get the feel for that until you see these, uh, the tracks of these individual birds. One of the geolocators caught not so long ago was of a bird that landed at Hudson Bay, Ontario, and flew 300 miles south to James Bay and then, and then flew 300 miles back. Uh, for whatever reason, I mean, you know, make up whatever story you want about it. True love or go see his brother-in-law or heard a rumor that there was good food or who knows. But distance seems to mean nothing to them if they're in good shape. If they're in good shape. 
Good shape means they should leave Delaware Bay weighing at least 180 grams. They have to double their weight in two weeks to have a good chance of survival in the Arctic. And the birds arrive here not just hungry from the long flight, Duncan says, but physiologically altered. They reduce their digestive system, they reduce their gonads to almost nothing for this migration. So when they get here, they can only eat the softest of foods. They can't eat clams and mussels that they normally eat. Delaware Bay offers up a special menu, the soft eggs of the hard horseshoe crab, a prehistoric mollusk that looks something like a World War II battle helmet. Horseshoe crabs lay eggs on the beach here, and they lay them deep. They dig them down, and the next crab that comes on, when the crabs are super abundant, as they were 20 years ago, the next crab digs up the other guy's eggs and brings them to the surface, where they are the perfect food for these birds. Horseshoe crabs dot the beach here. This is their breeding headquarters. But there used to be many more of them. In the 90s, commercial fishermen began harvesting them for bait. And Larry Niles says the rest is history. As the horseshoe crab population started to decline from over-harvest, the percent of birds that were making that critical weight, about 180 grams, started dropping until about 2003, almost no birds were making weight. And so then we saw a rapid decrease in the number of knots. Today, more than 60% of red knots still aren't packing on the grams fast enough. And finding food is no longer the only challenge to their survival. Climate change is throwing unpredictable weather their way. Charles Duncan. As storms get more frequent, we're certain that that will lead to increased mortality of birds flying south. And that's our best guess at the moment for what happened last year, where where knots left here in good condition, apparently, probably bred in good condition, started their southbound migration. And if you remember, we had four or five really very strong Atlantic hurricanes last year. So they're flying right into the teeth of these storms. Right now, the biggest battle in the struggle to preserve the red knot is to capture a group of them so they can be weighed and tagged. The data strapped onto the legs of red knots wearing geolocators can be downloaded and new journeys revealed. The team has only a few weeks to capture and release shorebirds before they head north. So we have a net set on the beach, buried in the sand. A large net attached to three cannons lies hidden on the beach. On cue, the scientists can fire the projectile web, which is spread by metal rods in the air. You could easily kill a person if you were sloppy with this. Or kill a lot of birds. If one red knot steps into the wrong place, the scientists cancel the entire operation. The red knots walking the shore have to be pushed delicately into just the right spot, a process called twinkling. Twinkling is skilled, very skilled people, walking the beach slowly in our direction as though they had no intention of scaring a bird or moving it. And the birds just very gently move ahead of the people, feeding all the time, not being interrupted, not leaving the beach and flying off perhaps to some other beach. And so that concentrates the birds in the area uh, in front of the cannon net. On the other side of the beach, from where Duncan and Niles watch the net, Ben the Twinkler looks like any other relaxed beach stroller. Casual, slow, but he's on a mission. He's the team's last shot at capturing a group of red knots before they roost for the day. It seems to be working. A small flock is edging ahead of him toward the net, but when a couple of beachgoers unknowingly approach the operation zone, his attention is diverted and he has to ask them to leave. Larry Niles grips his walkie-talkie and watches impatiently from a distance. Ben, we have to act fairly quickly. We only have a short amount of time. Roger that. We're running out of time quickly, but we still have... We could still make the catch now. See, if we push him too hard, they'll fly. So you worried? As I ask this, the red knots that were slowly approaching the net take flight, scattering into a darkening sky a flock of lost hope for the day. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> uh, they, they didn't get the battle plans that they needed to land right in front of us. But Charles Duncan and Larry Niles aren't discouraged for long. They plan the next day's work and chat about the tags they spotted on some shorebirds, a yellow band for a bird first tagged in Canada, an orange one for Argentina. If these shorebirds have taught them anything, it's endurance. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj.
facts, living on Earth, a boom in natural gas drilling in America's West is a bust for many residents there. What we went through here was just kind of like being in a war zone. It was really like we weren't in Colorado anymore. We couldn't believe that no one really cared about us. Racking natural gas in Colorado is enough to make some people sick. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with an insect instrumental. The Nebraska conehead is part of the katydid or longhorn grasshopper family. Bet you didn't know that, but it's not quite accurately named. Yes, they have broad coneheads, but their range extends far beyond Nebraska, as far south as Mississippi and east to Maryland. Coneheads can be green or brown. They live along roadsides in weeds and brush at the edge of fields and woods and can often be found hanging on a stem of grass, conehead down. Lang Elliott recorded the Nebraska conehead, and it's included on a CD called The Song of Insects. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, and Ike Shreeskandaraja, with help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Rafaela Benin and Jack Rodolico. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and be sure to check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And while you're online, visit MyPlanetHarmony.com. Our sister program, Planet Harmony, welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.